I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and I'm so glad you're joining us for our mini-series, A Traveler's Guide to Glory. We have been looking at all 150 Psalms, but there are 15 of them that are grouped together. Psalms 120 through Psalm 134 each bear the title, A Psalm of Ascent, because ancient pilgrims would recite them as they ascended, as they made their way up to the holy city to worship God. Now, most of these psalms are fairly short. In fact, the last one, one, Psalm 131, it was only three verses. So it may surprise us that we now have an 18-verse psalm as we near the finish. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness, May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. So you may be wondering, why do we have this very long psalm, at least comparatively speaking, this long psalm in the midst of a bunch of rather short psalms? I was under the impression that these traveling psalms were supposed to be short, like hiking tunes, you know, easily remembered, easily sung as you climbed up to the big church. The length suggests there is something significant about this psalm. And there is. There is something so significant that it begins with David making an oath, a vow not to get any shut-eye, not to sleep until he finds a resting place for it. What is it? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 132 is actually the only psalm that speaks about the Ark of the Covenant. And it comes here as we come near the end of the Psalms of Ascent. As we're coming up on the very crest of the city, we hear about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was so very special to the people of God. At one point, it had actually been lost to the Philistines for a couple decades. That is what is meant by them coming upon it in the fields of Jar, after the Philistines had returned it after its theft had caused them all kinds of trouble. And David had attempted at one point to move it, and a tragedy happened to poor Uzzah. And now we hear how David has sworn not to rest until he founded a resting place. 
So why was this wooden box so important to David and to the people of God? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was built in the days of Moses as a sign of the presence of God. Wherever it rested was the one place where heaven came down to earth, where the blessings of God could be experienced as his presence dwelt there. And as we approach the holy city, the travelers are remembering the significance of David and his desire to find a resting place for God's presence in the holy city, in the temple. And the people recall how God had promised that David would have a son. There was a covenant that his son would sit forever on a throne in a place where his presence was. And this, the people would, God would then experience salvation and they would sing for joy. Just think about it. For pilgrims singing this on their way to Jerusalem as they're coming close, there's, this was their great hope, their longing. But, friends, there was no Davidic king. There was no Ark of the Covenant. And therefore, there was no salvation or joy. Friend, as you journey through life, you can sing for joy because David's greater son has come. Our Lord Jesus was actually brought into the temple as a baby and the presence of God finally filled the temple. And by his death and resurrection and his ascension to heaven where he was crowned with glory, he has brought us salvation so you and I can sing for joy. And more, our Lord Jesus, David, greater son, well, he's actually not resting. He has made you and I into the dwelling place of his spirit and until we reach our resting place, he is at work as our high priest, praying for us until we enter glory as his faithful people. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel, and as a soul care specialist, I'd like to do a spiritual checkup by running a quick diagnostic on you. Please answer the following. How is your inner quiet lately? You say you're really noisy inside. What's the commotion? Ah, the to-do list, right. Pressures, general anxiety. Squirrels, what's that? You're busy thinking about how you'll answer my next question? I see. Diagnostic two, how would you rate your satisfaction in life right now? Hmm, discontent, irritation, regret, you don't say. What's that? Longings, fears, frustration. Okay, okay, last diagnostic. On a scale of one to 10, what is your hope meter at right now? That low, huh? Often depressed, frequently feels like a free fall. Other days it feels like you're tiptoeing to a minefield. Okay, okay, friend, this is actually a common condition, and the good news is it is treatable. I am prescribing Psalm 131. Now you need to take it in slowly. Don't chew it fast and swallow. Let it dissolve by praying it at least four times a day, once in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, and right before bed. Here it is, Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever.
So friends, we've been meditating on a group of 15 psalms, 120 through 134. And these psalms were the ones ancient pilgrims used as like their travel guide or a prayer journal on their journeys to Jerusalem. And the Lord preserved this prayer journal for 21st century believers who likewise are on a lifelong journey to glory to provide them with spiritual help in times of need. And Psalm 131 is perfect medicine for the noisy soul because it corrects first our posture of pride that we're so prone to. Verse 1, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Psalm 131 coaches us how to be masters of self. You see, we need self-mastery because our selves want to master our souls. And we are by nature self-absorbed. A popular slogan of our day is to coach your soul to believe in yourself. And when you place yourself as the subject of all trust, what happens? Well, you begin to look at everything from the perspective that you're at the center of the universe and you become opinionated, headstrong. You'll have haughty eyes looking down on others, being critical. Friends, pride is our natural bent and our selves are constantly telling us to judge all matters in our world. What a wonderful thing to be able to say, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Oh friend, this is soul relief. You see, we live in a time when you have access to the entire globe. You can witness the horrors of Ukraine, plagues and famines in Africa, just about every shooting that happens in our nation in real time. With social media, we can take up the posture of omnipresence, being everywhere at once. Add to that our access of, to infinite information that enables the proud self to take up the posture of omniscience, being all-knowing, having all the solutions to all the world's problems. And this blend of toxins leaves us like Alice in Wonderland, disoriented because we're either too big or we end up feeling too small because we see our lack of control. Friend, leave such wonderful concerns to Jesus. Only he is big enough to take the burden of the whole world on his shoulders. That's why verse 2 is so helpful to us. It shrinks us down to proper size, and it trains us to be satisfied. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. This verse calls you to see your soul as a weaned baby sitting on a lap, not a cranky, fussy baby. It's an unweaned child who sees the car that they don't have, the success they missed out on, the raise denied them, the health, the vacation, the career they see others have, and there's this constant craving. Psalm 131 coaches our souls to be weaned. Sure, our inner tummies may grumble, but we have trained ourselves to be content. Consider the picture. We're sitting in the lap of the one who gave us life who nurtured us thus far in our journey and promises to care for us all our days and bring us into glory. And verse 3 is actually the cure. We are called to put our hope in the Lord for all of our days. The cure for our soul's craving is not found in self-mastery of self. It's found in the Savior's mastery of ourselves. By allowing Jesus to rescue us as we learn to place our hope in the promises of his word. Friends, the good news is Christians are the only people in the world with the cure to hopelessness. We don't have to place our hope in ourselves. 
If I'm hoping in me, I have a thousand reasons to be anxious right now, and I can never have lasting inner peace. But we journey with hope because we walk hand in hand with the one who gave his life to save our souls and who gave us his spirit to guide us into that inner peace as we feed upon his promises during our journey. This journey to an eternal weight of glory, my friend, that is far more than all you can ask for or imagine. So take Psalm 131 four times a day and you'll find an inner quiet no matter what you face on your journey going forward. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. In Luke 18, 18, a man runs up to Jesus and asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we find in the conversation that follows, he had been a very good person since childhood. No doubt his friends and family would have been certain that this guy's ticket was punched. And yet, this very good man did not have assurance that he would make it to heaven. And for very good reason, friend, you can never, ever be good enough to get to heaven, no matter how far you've progressed in your life. And that is what we find at the beginning of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Friend, if you're a first-time listener, you're joining us in a mini-series I've entitled A Traveler's Guide to Glory. There is actually a bundle of 15 short psalms, all entitled The Psalms of Ascent. And ancient pilgrims would recite these as a shorter prayer book as they traveled from faraway places to their goal, the holy city of Jerusalem. And there is a progression in these psalms. As Psalm 120 begins in a faraway place, and the final Psalm 134 ends in the house of God, the sanctuary. Which may leave us puzzled as we hear this pilgrim cry out in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Wait a minute. We are two-thirds of the way to glory. We've made significant progress by now, haven't we? But this pilgrim cries out from a place utterly at the bottom. He sounds like he's drowning. He's crying out for mercy. Why? Because he has looked honestly at himself in the light of God's holy law, that law that says we must love God perfectly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. This pilgrim realizes that if God has a scorecard, if we get in by the system of good enough, he can and never will reach glory. This is what a famous monk named Martin Luther discovered that no one will ever find assurance of glory by trying to be good enough. Luther had to come to the end of himself to find his new beginning in God. And that is why he loved the but of verse 4. But with God there is forgiveness. And Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church that had lost this gospel life preserver. And his theses began with these words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace for pilgrims. 
It is where the journey of faith begins, and it continues throughout the whole journey until that day we reach glory and become sinless. We see and confess the awfulness of our sin every day, and we see God's mercy each and every day. You see, glory is a gift we receive by begging, not an allowance we earn by being good enough. And that recognition that it is a gift we receive as we come to God with empty hands does something to this pilgrim. It causes him to begin to wait in hope. Listen to verses 5 through 8. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Three times we hear the pilgrim has resigned himself to wait because he sees that God is ultimately the only one who can and will fix his mess. Now I know we live in a culture where no one wants to wait for anything. We want everything five minutes ago. But friends, in this spiritual journey, we must learn to wait train. Because as we wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, there is an interchange. Twice the writer says, my soul waits. He understands that our waiting is a spiritual thing and is holding on to God's precious promises. Notice our waiting keeps bringing us back to his word, keeps us taking in the reminders of who God is for us. And especially when we're in the dark about how things will work out, because that's sometimes where we find ourselves. You been there in the darkness like a watchman? That fellow would have been really longing for the morning. You see, the watchman was a guy who drew the short straw, and he had to go out and guard the city during the night in the silence when enemies were most likely to sneak up or wild beasts would come prowling. Can you imagine how long the night would be? Waiting for the horizon, for the sun, that first hint of light to come? The watchman is desperate. He's longing. He's waiting with everything for the sun to come. And that, friends, is where you and I are actually in a better position than this Old Testament pilgrim because we have already seen the risen Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to give his life on the cross so we would see the Father's unfailing love in his resurrection from the dead. Friend, eternal life is ours the moment we turn to Christ and you keep turning to him because you cannot out your Savior. He redeems God's people from all their sins. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Have you ever seen a movie that leaves you truly shaken or perhaps even shaking mad? The movie 12 Years a Slave had this effect on me. It's based on a true 1853 narrative where a free African-American named Solomon Northrup was tricked and sold into Southern slavery. And for 12 years, he endured the cruel suffering of his people that he had been spared of as a youth. There's a particular scene that angered me, where the sadistic slave owner, Edwin Epps, forces Northrop to whip his slave girl, Patsy. And Northrop finds himself standing on the other side of his people's history, having to crack the whip down on a back like his own, bringing devastation upon his own kind. The scene is heart-wrenching as Northrop begins to strike Patsy's exposed back and she cries out in agony again and again. But it gets worse when Epps gets angry that Northrop is being too gentle. 
and Epps angrily takes the whip and nearly whips Patsy to death while Northrop watches helplessly, unable to stop her suffering. Welcome to Psalm 129. Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel, and we're in a Psalm mini-series entitled, A Traveler's Guide to Glory. We're looking at the 15 Psalms of Ascent that pilgrims would sing on their journey to Jerusalem during Holy Days. And today's journey song reminds us that Israel was an oppressed people. Israel had a long history of oppression, starting with their 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And even after they were freed and came into the land of promise, enemies like the Amalekites, the Philistines, and later the Assyrians and Babylonians came again and again and afflicted the people of God. In fact, that is the reason so many of these ancient pilgrims are actually journeying to Jerusalem from a great distance. They were forced out of their homes, kidnapped, taken to foreign lands. It's no wonder they took up songs much like the slaves in America once did. You even have a cantor who calls out to the fellow pilgrims. He says, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Now let Israel say, and they would repeat that line, but then add, they have not gained victory over me. I find this quite impressive because they go on to talk about how the plowmen have plowed their backs with long furrows. They're remembering a picture of sickening torture that their people met. In the same way one would take a blade of a plow and dig into a field and go up and down, up and down, their backs have received the same treatment from their oppressors. I know some of us might well understand this. You have scars that you bear, maybe even from your youth. I've been fortunate enough not to have this happen to me, but as a foster parent, I've witnessed the scars and bruises, the belt marks on the backs of little ones. How do you think that makes me feel? Do you think I notice the marks on a young body and think to myself, no big deal? Of course not. But I say this because some folks assume that Christians are always lovey-dovey because we're called to turn the other cheek. But Psalm 129 tells us we are not supposed to be okay with oppression, particularly when it comes against the people of God, against Zion. The church today, friends, just like the Old Testament pilgrims, faces present threats. All over the world this is happening and we are not to turn a blind eye. This is why the pilgrim begins to pray that Zion haters will be turned back in shame and more that they will wither up and die like grass on a roof, that they never receive blessing from anyone. This is not a lovey-dovey prayer. But Joel, shouldn't we pray for them to repent? Absolutely. But some wicked people hate the church and will not repent. And if you see your sisters and your brothers' backs being bent and them being struck, I hope you'll not simply stand by and choose to be lovey-dovey. This is no personal vendetta. Out of love for God's people, we can and should pray 
that God bring judgment and devastation upon wicked men. I will close with a word for you who bear the scars of the oppressors. There is purpose in those scars. Israel's people had their backs plowed for century after century. And think about the result. Our Lord Jesus was the harvest and he gained the victory. And how did he do it? He left his godness behind to become a slave, Philippians 2, 7. And he gave up his back to those who struck him, Isaiah 50, verse 6, which means that he understands all our suffering. And at the cross of Calvary, he triumphed over our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And he was raised from the dead. And friend, if you've taken hold of him by faith, you too will find that all your scars will become beauty marks in the glory that awaits. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Greetings, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. Today, friends, we pass the halfway point in our series, The Traveler's Guide to Glory. We're looking at this group of 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, that ancient pilgrims would sing as they marched to Zion. And God has provided these for us as well as a sort of guidebook to help us mature spiritually as we journey through our own lives on our way to glory. I want you to notice that Psalm 128 is teaching us about blessing, about how to be blessed. Listen to the repetition of the word bless in Psalm 128. Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to Him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. Psalm 128 is a psalm that speaks about being blessed. And let's be real. Who doesn't want a blessing? And the good thing is there's plenty of blessing to go around. We see that blessing is available to all. Now friends, being blessed is actually one of the most prominent themes in the Bible. This was how the very first psalm began. The first words are, blessed is the man. You see, God wants us to be blessed. The Bible encourages us towards blessings. So Joel, how do we get blessing? Well, we're told here in Psalm 128, verse 1, to fear the Lord. And we may hear this and find it strange because we only think of fear negatively. How can fear be connected to blessing? Fear makes us want to run and hide. But that's not how to think of fear of the Lord. True fear of the Lord does not cause you to run from Him because you know you can't escape Him. You dare not run from Almighty God. Now, the reason why we feel we want to run is actually because we're not blessed apart from His grace. What does it mean to be blessed? It's actually the opposite of our condition since our fall into sin. The moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we were cursed in four different directions, the opposite of blessing. We're no longer properly related to God after that sin. We're also no longer rightly related to each other. We're not in right relationship with our world. And we're not even right with ourselves. 
Well, Psalm 128 tells us about restoration, being blessed in all these four different directions, with God, with our family, with our labors, and even with ourselves. But it doesn't tell us that we should seek the blessings in this area. That's where we often go wrong, friends, and Psalm 128 helps us to correct this. We don't seek the blessings. Rather, we learn to fear the Lord. You see, we don't get blessings apart from being rightly related to the blesser, our God. And it all starts with fear the Lord. True fear causes you to see how high and lifted up God Almighty is, which also leaves you seeing just how sinful you are. And you think that seeing God high and holy would create a distance from sinners, but actually the opposite is true. Here's the amazing thing. The more you fear the Lord and make yourself less, the more the Lord draws near to you. You see, God blesses those who fear him. We seek relationship with the Lord by seeing our need and his provision in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see how he has blessed us so immeasurably, the Father has sent his greatest gift, his own son to die on the cross so that we could be blessed. His own son became a curse for us. Well, that ought to set your knees knocking and in a good way. Sometimes, as the old hymn says, when we see the glory of Christ crucified for our prosperity, it should cause us to tremble, tremble, tremble. And it leaves you more and more living the happy life when you take that in, the happy life of growing obedience as you draw ever nearer to glory. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. We continue our series, The Traveler's Guide to Glory, working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, songs that were once aids to ancient pilgrims to guide them during their journey and help them to keep their eyes fixed on their destination. There are also wonderful guides for us. And how wonderful it is that at the halfway point of our own ascent, God has given us Psalm 127, as we reach the point where we've come too far to turn back, we learn how to trust God to bring our journey to completion. Psalm 127 Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. Friends, Psalm 127 informs us that you and I live in a world not that different from ancient pilgrims. We live in a world where there's so much insecurity so much insecurity and this can lead us to fret to be anxious and to try and figure out ways and strategies by which we can create security in an otherwise insecure world and God knows this and he's given us Psalm 127 as our wisdom guide during our earthly pilgrimage notice how he does this in the first three verses 
with three checks to our tendency to wrong thinking. We know that we should labor to build a good life for ourselves and our families. So how should we go about it? God says, wrong answer number one is to trust in your skill or work ethic. Unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. We also rightly want to make sure that those we love and all we have remain safe and secure. So how can we protect our prized people and possessions? God says, wrong answer number two is trusting in our watchfulness, our own careful attention. Unless the Lord watches over the city, all your watchful guarding is of no avail. And parents, we want to assure that we and our children are cared for, have all they need to flourish. So how can we make sure all their needs are met? And God says, wrong answer number three is by burning our candles at both ends trying to provide for them. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. Psalm 127 is a wonderful wisdom psalm given by God to remind you and I that we're not in control and thankfully we don't have to be. God is in control. So while it's a good thing to plan, to be watchful, to labor, to love our children, ultimately it's not our job to ensure success. We simply do what God calls us to do and then we put our heads on our pillows at night and rest, leaving all we've done in the Lord's hands. Friends, we can live stress-free and restful lives because God grants sleep to those He loves. Do you realize that God wants us to rest? In fact, the Sabbath command made His top 10 list. Why does God give us a command that says, Stop doing? Well, because we're not good at stopping and trusting. Because ever since the fall into sin, we're short-circuited to be non-stop busy in our vain efforts to be self-sufficient. Eugene Peterson says, well, nothing less than a command has the power to intervene in the vicious, accelerating, self-perpetuating cycle of faithless and graceless busyness. But God wants us to see that we're to trust in Him, let go of control, and rest in Him. That's actually what sleep reminds us. We stop. And yet the world goes on, because this is God's world, and He is at the center of all that gets accomplished in His story. He gets all the credit, too, for all the successes, and we get the privilege of participating in them. So we labor hard, and we rest well, knowing our labors in the Lord are never in vain. We seek to be good stewards of all we have, while understanding the Lord is the one who gives and takes away. And we see our children are heritage from the Lord. That means they don't belong to us. We're simply to care for them until we all become forever children of our Heavenly Father in glory. And wonderfully, God has guaranteed our success by sending His own Son, the Divine Warrior. Jesus became the cornerstone of a house that we get to help build that will never fail. And He continues to watch over us as our Good Shepherd. And he accomplished all that was needed by, for his whole family by his perfect obedience, providing all we need for our salvation. And now the Lord Jesus calls all of us to come, take his yoke upon us, and he says he will give us his rest. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. We are currently in a group of psalms entitled, The Psalms of Ascent 
which were likely the marching songs that the Old Testament pilgrims would sing as they walked up the steep path to Jerusalem. These inspired psalms taught them spiritual truths about their journey, and it helped them keep their eyes fixed on the destination, Jerusalem, the city of peace, or it could be translated the possession of peace, that peace that is only yours when you arrive at the one place where earth and heaven meet. Now, friends, these psalms, no doubt, were given by God to aid us in our spiritual journey as a sort of a traveler's guide to glory. Because do you ever feel your spiritual muscles are aching? Are you ever tempted to lose heart and to fall away? Well, friends, Psalm 125 is a perfect meditation in such times. It begins, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. Now, Remarkably, Mount Zion is not the tallest mountain in the region of Jerusalem, but it's deemed unshakable because it is the most fortified mountain, being located well within the city walls. And this enduring mountain prompts inspired thoughts of what it means to trust in the Lord. Psalm 124 had spoken to how God's people would be preserved throughout history because God is on our side. Psalm 125 follows by forecasting the perfect peace and safety which will one day be ours. And the inspired mountain thoughts, well, they continue in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. I love Calvin's comments here. He says that those who struggle to see God's invisible protection in their lives, they can peer out and do a 360 and take in all these great mountains surrounding the city. They can see in these mountains a mirror that God is holding up so that they may have faith, so they may see beyond doubt that they are surrounded on all sides by God's protection. My friend, this is your protection if you are trusting in the Lord. What does it mean to have a personal relationship with the living God? Your trust in God means that He is surrounding you for all your days. So, Joel, why do I struggle to believe that at times? Well, one reason is found in the next verse, verse 3. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Here's one problem, and apparently there's wicked leaders in Israel at this time, and we know wicked leaders have a corrupting effect on people. We've seen this throughout church history. Wicked men rise up in the ranks of the church and lead people into doing things previous generations never would have considered. Read Second Peter or Jude. It was predicted that in the last days, false teachers would come to lead people astray. We see this in our own nation with civil leaders who are full of pride, who now affirm things that were unthinkable, and they pressure the church to abandon truths that have been held for thousands of years. And if we don't affirm what they want, we face insults, alienation. We can lose religious liberties. We could face persecution. What do we do? Psalm 125 says we must trust in the Lord and we must also pray. Listen to verse 4. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. What a wonderful little prayer. When you're up against it, even as you're obeying God, call out and say, Lord, remember us by doing good to us. As we trust in you and resist evil, do us good. And friends, this is a prayer that I promise God will answer because we're given a couple of assurances here to close, a couple promises. Verse 5, 
but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Psalm 125 looks ahead to that day the earth will be purged of all evildoers. And friend, here's the secret. The only way you will have confidence of this truth is by having a bigger view of God, by taking in just how big and powerful the God is, God is in relationship that you're in relationship with. God is the supreme potentate. And it closes with God saying, peace be on Israel. God pronounces a benediction of peace on all his people. Peace not like the world gives, but shalom. Shalom, my friend, which will be the eternal possession for all those who put their trust in the Lord. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. I saw an article the other day that had the title, The Evangelical Church Faces a State of Emergency. Now, this is not the first article I've seen predicting or warning evangelicals that the church today is in big trouble. In fact, I don't have to look at social media to see the dangers facing God's people. All I have to do is open my Bible, and there it is again and again and again. In fact, we come today to Psalm 124, which was written by David, a psalm that gives us insight into just how close Israel came to being completely annihilated by the Philistines. The Philistines had killed King Saul and his son Jonathan. They had smashed Israel's army. No doubt the Philistines thought it was a foregone conclusion that they would drive Israel out of the Promised Land and the people of God would never be heard from again. Psalm 124 reminds us that though the people of God are outnumbered, and though the enemy is so great and is bound and determined to destroy us, we've got nothing to fear. Why not, Joel? Because God is on our side. Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, Psalm 124 is the fifth of 15 psalms in our devotional series that I've entitled, A Traveler's Guide to Glory. In God's hymn book, there's a group of songs and psalms entitled, The Psalms of Ascent, and believers would sing these as they made their way up to Jerusalem, to the holy city. And they help us to see how we have a destination, and the Psalms of Ascent offer us spiritual help for our journey. Psalm 124 tells us we will reach our destination, though it will only be through a history of narrow escapes. And the only reason we do escape is because God is on our side. And friends, that's something to sing about. Now, have you ever been to a concert where the artist begins to sing one of their hit songs, one that everyone in the crowd knows and loves and they start singing along with? Well, that's kind of how I see Psalm 124 starting off. You have David begin a line to one of his hit psalms. He sings, If the Lord had not been on our side, 
And then he stops and he holds out his microphone and he says, Let Israel say. And the crowd, Israel, they sing back that line about God being on their side. And they just love that line. Why is that so great a line for them? Because they know their very survival as a nation had been at stake. The Philistines had attacked them in such number and strength, they would have been swallowed alive. They described the attack like a raging flood that would have swept them away. They described being snatched from the teeth, ready to tear them to shreds. I mean, imagine a great white shark closing in on you, razor sharp teeth, ready to shred you. You also have the imagery of a trap that has sprung, but suddenly it's broken because it was not to be. God was on their side. And they say, praise the Lord. And friends, the church needs to take Psalm 124 to its lips to remind ourselves that we have a long history of narrow escapes. It appears today like the church cannot survive horrible scandals, many of which are truly awful, that we won't survive the culture wars, the pandemic, the seeming irrelevance of the gospel in our day. There are evil forces that want to snuff out truths that we have held for all our history. <laughs> the church is so small. The enemy is so great. But friends, this is exactly God's plan. And think about it. If we were so great and powerful, and with our power we won the victory over our modern-day Philistines, who would the world credit the victory to? Well, they'd give the victory credit to us, the church. But the church won't get the earthly glory. God gets the glory when he takes a small band of disciples in the first century and helps them to escape persecution so that they can Christianize the Roman Empire. God gets the glory when 16th century Christians are being imprisoned and even burned at the stake. And he pulls a Luther from the snare and begins a reformation that transforms the globe. Friends, we need not fear in our own day as the culture grows increasingly hostile to the church, and it doesn't seem like we have much glory here. Friends, the church won't have much glory here, but we will reach our destination. We will reach glory, the ultimate glory at the end. Why? Because our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My friends, remember who you are and who you belong to.